Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Talkin' Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And today we are going to be talking about the 1981 film directed by Toby Hooper, The Fun House. It's weird that we just did a month on Universal Horror, and now we've left that month, and we're starting off with a Universal Horror film. Yeah, I, you know... (laughs) It was kind of weird because, like, you had asked me before uh, choosing this movie, like, if I had ever seen it, and I said no. But upon watching this, about halfway through, I realized, like, wait a minute, I've seen this movie before. Really? Yeah. Because um, I totally remembered, like, once the kids actually got into the funhouse, then I was like, okay, this, I've totally seen this before. But anyway, I hadn't remember. So maybe I only saw part of the movie or whatever. But, um, yeah, that for the opening scene. Um, I didn't remember at all, but it's funny because it comes in and it's like, yeah, it's universal, <laughs> universal pictures presents and it starts in like, it's, you know, they're the, the posters on the wall are of like Dracula and Frankenstein and the Wolfman. And then they're, and then the father's watching Bride of Frankenstein on TV. So it feels like a very natural progression from where we just left off. Yeah. And I really like the way that it is. I mean, it's 1981 and at that point. You know, we've got Friday the 13th Part 2, Halloween 2, uh, like, you know, the big slasher boom mm-hmm. is going on, and this is a movie that does get lumped into, like, that group. In some ways, it is a slasher film, but it's almost like it's incorporating all of the horror history from before. Yeah. I mean, like, in that opening scene, you've got Halloween and Psycho. Yeah. With all the universal monsters surrounding it, basically. Yeah. Totally. Uh, yeah, right from the first scene, it feels like, okay, we are we are basically in this homage to the entire genre, um, which was cool to see. Um, but I'm just going to back up a little bit. The reason why we're talking about The Fun House is um, we're going to spend the next couple of episodes looking at uh, movies that are suitable for Halloween viewing, I guess you could say. Yeah, it's hard to really verbalize, but it's just, there's certain kinds of horror films that feel right for Halloween. Yeah. Like, there's, like, usually a fun aspect to them, and also some of them, there's just, like, you actually mentioned this when we were talking about Todd Browning's Dracula. Like, there are certain films where you can, just watching it, you sort of feel this, like, autumn chill in the air. Mm Mm-hmm. And you start to smell the, the leaves on the ground. And it just feels like October has come. Yeah. And yeah, Dracula for me is one of those. And so you had, uh, thinking about what mo- what uh, movies you wanted to tackle um, for our October uh, episodes, you had sort of suggested looking at some movies that capture that feeling and um you suggested funhouse and having seen the movie i can definitely totally see why uh why you would suggest it because it does it feels like a a great halloween movie yeah and it does have that chill in the air to it And, and i think like so the area that we live in like when i think of the fair i think of the washington county fair which is always the last weekend of august so it's like the end of summer leading into not fall but you know the beginning of the school year which like growing up you always associate with oh now it's fall Mm -hmm. 
Um, and it's weird. The film, The Fun House, was shot in uh, Miami. But it, it feels like it's like... It does not feel like Miami at all. Yeah, it feels like, oh, this is autumn in upstate New York, kind of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other more unfortunate reason why we're talking about The Fun House is uh, because we wanted to talk about Toby Hooper um, because, unfortunately, he just passed away. At the time of this recording, it was a couple weeks ago, actually. Um, by the time you're hearing this, it's been <laughs> quite a while. But, um, you know, and we, we came back with the show uh, with a, a tribute episode to uh, George Romero. And, uh, yeah, it was about a month after that that uh, Toby Hooper passed as well. Yeah, and we had mentioned Toby Hooper in that episode as being part of, like, that group of, like, American horror auteurs of that era, along with uh, Wes Craven, who also had passed, and Mm -hmm. we're praying for you, John Carpenter. (laughs) (laughs) And if if you expand it beyond um, America, you would also, I I would put Dario Argento and David Cronenberg in there, too, Mm -hmm. as, like, the the huge ones of that generation i would say there's of course many others but came out of the 70s and really like totally redefined what it meant to be a horror film yeah um it's sort of like would it be fair to say that they were kind of the first generation who had like really grown up loving horror films and became filmmakers themselves because i know that it's like it's it's sort of a bit later i mean in the 70s but i mean they were you know, children, you know, back when a lot of those, the movies that we had just been talking about this past month, all those universal films, um, they grew up watching them and applied it to their own films. Yeah. They were mostly born in that era, like in the forties. Yeah. And I mean, they're, I'm trying to think of like filmmakers before that era who would, you know, in interviews and stuff, always talk about how influenced they were by earlier horror films. And for some reason, the only one that's coming like right to my mind is Ed Wood, <laughs> mm. because when he mm-hmm. was like, uh, let's see, he was born in twenty four, I think, so he would have been like seven when the the Lugosi Dracula came out, right? And he would talk about like what a life changing experience that was. And I mean, yeah, the, the proof is in the is in the pudding there. <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, Bela Lugosi literally did change his life. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so I guess like, yeah, Ed Wood would be kind of like a part of that first generation who was really inspired as a as a kid watching those horror movies and then became but i mean you could probably go back and say like some of the people who were making films in the 40s were probably influenced by films they had seen in the 20s yeah and also i mean i wouldn't i'd hesitate to lump bride of the monster in with night of the living dead texas chainsaw massacre last house on the left and halloween but yeah but i mean like when but ed wood was kind of in that in between generation yeah. um during the 50s that kind of is like the horror in the 50s is kind of a weird place anyway yeah because there's it's there it's there it's just not there yeah <laughs> like it, i don't know it's, it, it feels like because it, it didn't really like like you had like the hammer uh films like literally re uh remake the the universal films right so there was like that clear sort of trajectory that they were on um but the, and then but it was mostly like a lot of sci-fi kind of like uh big mutant monsters and and uh and that sort of thing and like that was 
like the bigger ones were like that, but there were like these smaller ones. Not always small. I'd say, I mean, House of Wax. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was, uh, you know, it was in 3D. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I guess like the William Castle stuff in the 50s. Yeah, and I mean, later this month we will be covering one of those. Yeah. Um, it, I, it, so it's just like, like you said, it's there. Like there, but it's harder for me to sort of like pin down like. It's not what you think of when you think of the 50s and, like, yeah, genre films. Usually strange. your mind just immediately goes to, like, oh, yeah, sci-fi. Yeah, I think about, like, like Day of the Earth is still and, I don't know, like, Godzilla and them. Yeah, and I mean, like, Godzilla is a horror movie. Yeah. I would say them is a horror movie. I would love to watch them with somebody who has never seen the poster or heard of the movie before. Yeah, right. <laughs> because you would not guess, like, oh, it's going to be Giant Ants. Spoilers, yeah, for, by the way. Yeah, because with not a name really like the them, you would think, like, I mean, that could be applied to anything. And Why a, Giant Ants? And it's a, it's a terrifying film because it starts off with just, like, this child who has seen something horrifying. She's been through something traumatic and we slowly learn about what's happening following, like, this little kid, which is similar, in a way, to some parts of the Funhouse. You're right. It is. Um, yeah, so then Toby Hooper comes along in uh, in the 70s. And in a lot of ways, he's kind of, like, responsible for more responsible for like the the slasher genres uh new life or like well because when did the slasher really begin i mean we talked about this a little bit in our mummy episode where we were sort of thinking about karis as being sort of like the first slasher villain and his series of films kind of being the first slasher series but um the 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 common tropes that we think about like you know a group of kids going out to um, some remote location somewhere, and mm. then each being picked off one by one by some masked killer. Um, were, were there any before Texas Chainsaw Massacre that you could say like really fit into that mold? I mean, that's difficult to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, as far as masked killers, you have the early Jalo films, but those weren't really slashers. That there's elements of them that led to it, as I mean, we talked about that in our Black Christmas episode, right? Yeah, and Black Christmas that's you know the same year as Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm-hmm. and really, it's those two films combined becomes yeah. the slasher, yeah, genre. for real. Because I mean, even like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like doesn't have a lot of the hallmarks that would become synonymous with slasher, but it introduced this whole this real kind of raw gritty uh dirty quality to it yeah it really brought it sort of tore down the wall between like reality and movie <laughs> yeah um where like you i mean especially when you look at like and and i mean and we talked about this in the george romero episode night of living dead kind of did that too hmm. so it's hard to make any sort of blanket statement <laughs> about any of these things yeah because you look at uh and then throw west craven in there and you look at the last house on the left and the last house <laughs> exactly yeah um so, it's odd that John Carpenter is kind of the odd man out there because his films are very, they're not as loose. They're mm-hmm. very like perfectly structured visually. He's got a handle on like the composition. They're very, I don't want to say slick, but, yeah, but you, I, I get with the other yeah. films, it's almost like, oh my God, some maniac got hold of a camera. 
Right. <laughs> but John Carpenter, it's like, oh, there's like a master at work here. Yeah. And what's interesting watching The Fun House, which was made uh, not too long after Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, Chainsaw was 74, right? Yeah. And uh, Fun House is 81. So, you know, less than a decade. It's You'd be hard-pressed to, like, if you didn't know that they were both directed by the same person, um, it may be difficult to guess because the stylistically they are so different. But there are certain things that, like, so clearly come through um, as just being like, okay, the messed up people in this carnival feel like they could be yeah. at home in the house, <laughs> in in, uh, in Leatherface's house, you know? And, like, the father character, the carnival barker, um, the father of uh, the monster, we'll say, um, the way he yells at him and then kind of acts sympathetically towards him later, it's similar to the cook in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. Like, he's just, like, yelling, like, look what your brother did to the door, and that right. kind of stuff, and, like, but, I mean, in the end, you know he loves them. Mm-hmm. It's a little, uh, it's a little more subtle in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There's no, like, emotional moment with that character. Right, you get the idea but... that they are a family unit. Yeah. Because, I mean, there's, you know, Oh, here's here's grandpa and here's you know all the all the you know brother and the son and all this kind of stuff but yeah. and the weird kind of ambiguous family relations because di- i mean different people writing reviews of chainsaw you know they'll refer to the cook as like oh the older brother or oh the father and it's like well he could be both and it's like a creepy thing to kind of think about yeah you know yeah. i've never i've just always assumed he was a father. I've always placed him as... Because he's sort of like the patriarch of the well, family, it seems. Well, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2, mm-hmm. which I love, um, it, explicit, it explicitly mentions at, at some point in there that they are brothers. But that does not mean he's not the father also. True. Very true. Um, but I guess my point earlier with talking about, like, if you put the two movies uh, next to each other... They're shot like Funhouse is sort of shot more in that kind of uh, John Carpenter esque way that you were describing. Mm. It's a lot more slick than something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, and I thought it was really interesting because there is a lot of debate about Toby Hooper's involvement with Poltergeist. And I think like uh, because you can see you can watch Poltergeist and you can you can definitely feel the uh, the Spielberg influence there. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think like for a lot of people maybe watching that, it might be easy to point to Poltergeist and say like, I see more Spielberg than Texas Chainsaw in that movie. But if you watch The Fun House, it kind of connects those dots. Yeah. Where it's like, I can see The Fun House filmmaker in Poltergeist. Yeah, and also, I mean, between... Texas Chainsaw Massacre and The Fun House. Toby Hooper directed Eaten Alive, uh, sometimes called Death Trap. I think that's what the Blu-ray releases. Um, and also uh, Salem's Lot, the NBC miniseries, which was the first Stephen King adaptation for TV. And it was only the second Stephen King adaptation ever after Carrie. Um, and that, oh, there's definitely, you can see a little bit of Poltergeist in Salem's Lot. And I think part of it is just because, like, 
he's working with children in that also. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually he's working with children or a child in Eaten Alive. And, uh, and later in uh, Invaders from Mars as yeah. well. Which is an interesting thing that like I've never really thought about Toby Hooper as being like having that childlike sensibility, I guess. With where you know, it's because you look at Poltergeist, and that's something that's so such a hallmark of Spielberg. You know, yeah. that like he has chill. He's usually he's oftentimes uh, telling the story through the perspective of a child. But like that's totally something that Toby Hooper is like all about as well. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's just interesting. I never really associated that with him. Well, because I mean, when you think Toby Hooper, you think. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which... And Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. Yeah, it, it's like, um, you know, when we were talking about Romero and his zombie films, uh, and we mentioned, like, Orson Welles and Citizen Kane, it's like, oh, that really sucks that Orson Welles is known for this one movie, but who, I mean, I would kill to be known for making Citizen <laughs> Kane, and right. I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I, if, if I ever end up in a position where... You know, Sight and Sound magazine sends me that poll, and they're like, "We want to know your top 10. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is probably going to be there. I think and you're not I do saying think you're not saying top ten horror films. You're top saying top ten films. Top ten films. I it affects you on a visceral level. It's it's beautiful. Just the way everything goes together. It's got everything. There's the black humor. Um, it's just it's like it. You know, like a lot of times people refer to movies as roller coaster rides and like a derogatory term, like, oh, there's nothing behind it. It's a roller coaster ride. This is a roller coaster ride in a good way. You like, you go for a ride in this movie. You are like physically shaken by this movie. Absolutely. But it also yeah. has all these like underlying themes and just it's. It's just a great fucking film. Mm-hmm. And the. The. So the slight downside of that, I guess, is that, you know, everything he did after that. Right. I mean, like, Salem's Lot, a lot of people agree, like, well, as far as, you know, TV miniseries go, that's one of the better horror ones. But often the credit for that will go to Stephen King. And then, you know, Poltergeist, <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, that's I, I loved that as a kid. That's that Spielberg movie, right? Right. Um. And I don't know, like I for the past like few weeks in preparation for this episode, I've been like living and breathing the films of Toby Hooper, which is sad because he's not living and breathing. Um, but like I've just been watching all these movies that I never really thought much uh, or thought about that much. And you know, like I watched them like once years ago, and then rewatching them, I'm like I missed so much. Yeah. And um, like one I saw for the first time. Uh, was another Stephen King adaptation he did, uh, The Mangler, which my expectations for that film were rock bottom. There was, well, that like, came out in the 90s, right? Yeah. Um, with Robert England mm-hmm. in like ridiculous old age makeup. <laughs> and it's about uh, a mangler or a like a, a laundry folding machine you know, that's possessed. <laughs> That's a ridiculous concept for a movie, <laughs> but it's, it's kind of like Bram Stoker's Dracula in like, if you turned the sound off and just looked at it, you'd be like, holy shit, this is amazing. Mm. Um, he definitely does have like a visual style. He loves like, uh, the camera, like to crawl all over the place. Um, 
and not necessarily like haphazardly. Like, all right, so like you were saying, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's very. Um, I'm not sure how you worded it just a few minutes ago. Um, but like it's it's it has the raw gritty sort yeah. of documentary style, and then like within that you've got like that great tracking shot of Pam walking up to the house, and it's almost like that shot is what Toby Hooper decided like no this is going to be my thing these gliding shots these like beautifully composed like mm-hmm. mobile shots and um, I mean the Mangler it's a silly movie it's a silly fun horror movie but it's beautiful. And it's centered around a machine. Yeah. And that... But also, like, uh, like the oppressive nature of capitalism. I mean, there's that going on in a lot of his movies, actually. But it, it, that idea, and I haven't seen The Mangler, but it, it seems familiar to how the funhouse is kind of shot. Yeah. Like, like, once we're in the funhouse, like, he really rings every last bit of that set out of it because we're like going in all of the different nooks and crannies and seeing it from all different angles and like it's it really is like you know you get to kind of know the fun house rather intimately the inside of it um but at the same time after watching the movie if you watch the movie like 50 times and then somehow we're like transplanted into that funhouse right you could not figure out how to get out of yeah, there because i mean it's purposely disorienting because you're because yeah. you know part of me is watching it and i'm just like they really can't find any way out of this goddamn funhouse <laughs> like it's just it can't be that big right but like uh you know there's so many cool little areas that like i mean visually it is it is wonderful to look at yeah um like i really like when um when the not the not Amy the main girl but the the other girl who I'm, Liz Liz that's right when she falls down the trapdoor and then she's like down in this sort of like uh, ventilation mm. shaft there's just a really beautiful shot where we're like uh, slowly pushing into her as she like sort of regains consciousness and wakes up and just looking at that shot I'm like I feel like you could take that shot and put it up against like anything that any one of these other like horror directors had done it feels almost yeah. like a touch of like argento or something in it and it, it it's great and aside from just being like a beautiful shot it also sort like as the camera's getting closer i mean especially in 1981 audiences would be like primed to think like is this the killer's pov is he closing in on her mm-hmm. or are we just are we just closing in on her and then there's like that great trick where it's just like that piece of paper like kind of blows into her face and goes yeah, by, that was really and it's like, cool. oh shit, this is oh no, it's just a piece of paper. Yeah, it's just a newspaper or something. Yeah, yeah. Which, not I mean, on the one hand, it's like, oh, it's a cheap scare, but it also serves the purpose of showing like, oh, she cannot get out that way because that piece of paper can't even get through that fan. Right. Yeah, it shows the danger of the spinning fan behind her. Um. Now in, the, all right, so. You watched the Funhouse on uh, the Blu-ray put out by uh, Scream Factory, which yeah, is the, like the part copy of Shout that you Factory. lent me. Yes, um, I am used to the Good Times DVD, which uh, visually is very dark. I mean, it's a dark film; it takes place like uh, almost entirely at night, yep, and in a dark funhouse. But it's it's too dark. Um, you mean the DVD is too dark? Yeah, yeah, uh, and. Aurally, 
a lot of it is very muddy and you can't always make out uh, some of like the quieter dialogue. And there is a lot of quiet, a lot of muttering. A lot of muttering, a lot of whispering when Mm -hmm. we're like sneaking around the fun house and stuff. Yeah. Now I, when I purchased the Blu-ray, I listened to the commentary. I watched all the special features and I got to see what the movie looked like, but I never actually listened to the movie on the Blu-ray, and I'm curious, uh, how was the sound for you on it? I thought the presentation, both sound and, and, and video quality on the Blu-ray, looked fantastic and sounded great, too. Right, like, good. the score really felt, like, uh, you know, separated from everything. Like, I, I could identify all of the different elements. Like, it didn't I, it didn't get muddy to me at all. I, I didn't feel That's that. good, because John Beale's score is very impressive in this mm-hmm. movie, and it's not, it's not what you would expect from, like, a, like, oh, just some slasher movie at that time. Yeah, um, I'm just there's a there is a, a commentary on that disc. Yeah, because it's not in the special features. Is it in like the? If you go to like the setup, why do they do that? I don't know. It's so annoying. Because, yeah, because like I you know, and I didn't check the back of the box. I just I just went through the because I watched all the special features on there, and I was like, oh, it's a shame that they don't have a commentary. What's even more annoying is there's an import version from Arrow Video, and that's like top tier of the blu-ray companies right that's like the criterion of horror right now yeah and like nothing in shout factory shout factory does amazing work um but, but like you kind of i kind of want the arrow blu-ray because that has three different commentary tracks holy cow but they don't have toby hooper oh, that's so true. it's like you need to buy both blu-rays to get all so the, four commentary this fun house that has a commentary by toby hooper yes with uh tim sullivan who directed uh 2001 maniacs Gosh, and others and um it's kind of a difficult commentary to get through um listening to toby hooper talk as well he's, he's you know from austin texas he's got a bit of a drawl which you know whatever that's fine um and also he's a bit of a stoner and um he's in the in advanced age there's a lot of mumbling and a lot of like prompting is required at certain points and it, it, it's kind of hard to like listen to him like get stuff out sometimes but uh, it, there is rewarding stuff in there yeah it's a shame I wish I had uh, paid closer attention to the uh, the back of the box and well we could that there was pause one. this and watch <laughs> that and then take it right back up yeah, I don't know if we're going to have time for that tonight, yeah. but, um, well, but you like, watched it, so that's good, too. So yeah. We're bringing the information in. And, like, all the, um, all the other special features on the Shout Factory Blu-ray are exclusive to this disc, and then the Arrow Video Blu-ray has other special features that are exclusive to that disc, so... so you're saying if you want the full Funhouse experience, you need both releases. Yeah. You need to double dip. And while the Arrow one is an import, it is, uh, region ABC, mm-hmm. so it will play mm-hmm. on, uh, North American player, uh, allegedly. Man, I tell you, these uh, these Shout Factory releases. Uh, I mean, it's the same. It's the same deal with Criterion. You can fall down that rabbit hole yeah. and just be like, because because they look so great. The presentation's so awesome. Like the just like the packaging and everything. Like and the, the reversible just, cover that has got like the reversible the cover. Old yeah, they, they really just go the extra mile. And like you can just totally like, I just imagine them like the whole collection on your shelf, and it's just you know, <laughs> it would be great. But. Yeah. No one's got that kind of money or time to watch all the movies. <laughs> um, 
yeah, I didn't even have time in the past few weeks to watch all the Hooper films that I wanted to watch, but I did get to rewatch um, his remake of The Toolbox Murders, which I love that movie. And, I mean, it has Angela Bettis in it, and I believe I mentioned this in our episode on The Woman. She's just like, she's my favorite actress. I fucking love Angela Bettis, so I'm happy to see her in anything, but she's she's amazing in that. And it's also just a beautifully shot film, and it's one of his last films. When did it come out? That would be 2004, I believe. Mm. So he had a couple after that. His last one was Jin. Right, and that was... Uh... 2013, I believe. Gotcha, yep. Um... I really don't know much about that one. <laughs> yeah, you know, I honestly, like, when I, when I was looking over his filmography, I have not seen, I don't think, any of his post-80s films. Hmm. I don't think I've seen any of his movies from the 90s or beyond. Well, I highly recommend Toolbox Murders and The Mangler. Cool. Yeah, we'll definitely have to check that out. I, I wanted to rewatch Mortuary, which is the film he did right after the Toolbox Murders. Uh, and I remember when I first watched it, I was like, oh, okay, he's back. He did the Toolbox Murders, and he's awesome again. Uh, and then Mortuary, I did not like at all. But maybe if I watch it now, I'd find something in it that I did like, and maybe it was just me back then being difficult. But there is that idea, like, even me thinking, like, oh, he's back, is weird, because I haven't seen all of his films, but there was always this idea that, like, oh, he kind of lost track somewhere. The 90s were a hard time for, for that whole generation. Yeah, and like he... All right, so he did The Fun House, and then right after that he did Poltergeist. And even before the film was done, there were the rumors on Poltergeist, like, well, Toby Hooper didn't really direct it. And, you know... Um, and so Poltergeist was a huge hit, but it didn't really do much for his career. And then he, like, he did enough for him where he was able to get a three-picture deal with canon uh and that was where he did life force invaders from mars and texas chainsaw massacre part two i enjoy on some level all of those chainsaw two i just is fucking great Mm -hmm. um but they were not really financially successful movies and they cost more money than they probably should have and Basically, after that, it was a lot of TV work. And every now and then he would do a feature. And that was just how it was for, like, the next 30 years of his career. Yeah, and that's a shame, especially when, like, so many of those movies that maybe weren't as successful at the time became these, like, cult classics later on that he was celebrated for. And he could probably go to any horror convention ever, and people would be like like you be like i love texas chainsaw massacre too yeah and he'd probably be like where were you when this movie came out <laughs> it's like i was in nursery school i'm sorry <laughs> yeah but uh you know it's just yeah it's it's unfortunate that like sometimes it just takes it just takes that time to you know for for the culture to catch up or whatever it is i doing i try to do research for this episode and there's stuff out there like the other directors that we've mentioned there's so much stuff out there like whole books written about them toby hooper i could find like one book like one actual like professional book um that was like uh released like in english uh that i did not read the book 
but I was like, okay, at least I found one. That makes me feel a little better. There were a few uh, in other languages. Um, so, like, he's somewhat respected elsewhere, I guess. And I was starting to feel really sad. But then um, I went a little further, and I'm like, oh, there is love for Toby Hooper out there, but it's online. Which, you know, I sound like a fossil. Like, oh, the internet. <laughs> I didn't think to do research on the internet. Uh, usually my it's research... It's all on that AOL. <laughs> usually it starts with me just going through all the books in my house, looking in the index, being like, all right, how many times does it say Toby Hooper? How many times does it say The Fun House? Uh, and I got some stuff from those books. But, you know, then, like, I searched books elsewhere. And then finally I just, like, was Googling Toby Hooper The Fun House. And that's how I found the Toby Hooper Appreciation Society website. Wow, there's a whole society. Which, uh, there haven't been many recent posts. I don't think there have been any posts in the past few years. The last time I checked. But there's some really uh, intelligent writing on there about him. And the cream of the crop, though, especially for this episode, was something called the Funhouse Blog. Which, basically, this guy, Matthew Hurwitz, um... He had read the, the Jonathan Lethem book on the movie They Live, John Carpenter's film They Live, uh, which was like, it was just, it was a monograph, just, it was a whole book written about this one movie, but it was written as if it was like a commentary, so it would have like time codes, like every few paragraphs, like at this so you, So you're supposed to read along as the movie's playing? Or... I mean, sort of, but it's more like just so that like you, as somebody who's seen the movie, has some vague idea of like, oh, so at this point the author's referencing this. Gotcha. Um, so this guy kind of tried, like, after reading that book, he was like, oh, I should do that with the Funhouse. And it's just, like, a series of blog posts. I've been reading it for over a week. I'm not done yet. Wow. I'm up to the point, actually, right after Liz's murder. So what kinds and, of, what, what kinds of things does, uh, who's the writer? You just said it. I just forgot. Matthew Hurwitz. Matthew Hurwitz. Okay. I keep wanting to say Mitchell, but is that the guy who did Arrested Development? Yes, that's me. Okay, yeah. all right. Um, so what kinds of things does he blog about in these blog posts? What, uh, what does he say about the movie? I mean, it's a combination of like behind-the-scenes stuff, um, digressions on different actors who show up, and then just like looking at different shots, uh, mostly to say, holy shit, look how beautiful this shot is. I mean, the crane shots in this film. Yes, yes. As, as like, the little boy is wandering through the fairgrounds and we, yeah, crane up over everything. It's uh, Yeah, and you see, like, how alone he is and yeah. how all of a sudden, with just, you know, snap of the fingers, this once thriving carnival is just, like, a ghost town. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, it emphasizes how, like, the kids in the funhouse... Like, there's, like, no one around outside the funhouse who could help them should they come in harm's way. Um, but, yeah, so it's, uh, you know, it's a mixture of, like, criticism and, you know, a little history and just examination of, like, the aesthetics of the film. It's, it's a very well-written blog. I'd recommend it to anybody. Cool. And where, where can people find it? Well, they can find a link to it at the bottom of this... Uh, in the show notes. Yeah, um... That, that's uh, tobyhooperfunhouse.blogspot.com Cool. But, uh, yeah, one of the entries... Alright, so what was odd to me, before I ever saw the Funhouse, 
there was like there were certain images that I would see every now and then, like when when the Funhouse would come up, usually just reading something about Toby Hooper. Um, and also on the back of the Good Times DVD that I have, there's an image of William Finley. And I was like, oh, William Finley's in this movie. He must be a bad guy or something. He's this crazy guy. He's in like a lot of the early De Palma films, Phantom of the Paradise. He's the lead in that. Um, and he's just, he's in one scene. The Magician. In the, yeah. Yeah. It's a great fucking scene. It's awesome, yeah. But like on, on the, the Funhouse blog, like they when it gets to that scene, that actually, that one short scene takes up a few posts. And a lot of it is talking about like, just William Finley's career and so, um, mm. but it's, I love how that scene could be removed and it would not affect the plot whatsoever. Not at all. But yeah. I feel like a lot would be missing without that scene. For sure. And this is something that uh, I watched the movie with uh, Kayla and, um, I was talking about how I really enjoy the first half of this movie more than the second half. Like, and the second half is when it basically sort of becomes a slasher film. When it turns into the slasher film, yeah. Yeah. But everything leading up to that, I think, is just, like, really much uh, just much better and more enjoyable for me, personally, I guess. And also, I imagine, like, going into it... If, like, what did you know going in? Um, not a whole lot, honestly. So I feel like as you're introduced to all these random characters at the carnival, it's like... Any one of these creepy people could be a legitimately creepy person who might kill somebody. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, and that's part of what makes it makes the the tension uh, so great to the point where when when the actual danger is revealed, it's you know, it definitely does a good job of building that up because we're worried about you know our our four teens, but we're also worried about the kid who's like wandering down the road. And some creepy guy oh, comes pulling up next to him in a truck <laughs> with a shotgun, like, hey, kid, want, want, you want to get in? And it's like, you know, you never, you don't know where the danger is going to be coming from, ultimately. Yeah. And then we're walking through the fair, and there's, like, this really creepy old lady who's like, God is watching you. Mm. And then there's, like, this, like, messed up looking guy who looks like the 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 hitchhiker from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um he kind of has he's just like body shape kind of looks like him and he's got similar hair um he's kind of dirty and he just he doesn't he doesn't really say or do anything oh in this the, movie. i think he's credited as the geek okay yeah he's, he's just sort of just like, be like a geek like the who would like you know bite the heads off chickens at carnivals right yeah he, yeah there's that guy just sort of like leering around every once in a while um and then there's the uh the the carnival barker who is the father of the 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 ultimate monster. Yeah. But he shows up a couple times as different characters. Yeah. And this was something that I did not put together until after the movie because like but you see him in his first incarnation and he's uh alive alive alive. Right, he's outside of the uh the the cow tent, which yeah. just a side note on the cows. It's very upsetting. To see these, uh, I know. these poor, these poor I cows. Have, like, it's like when we were talking about, um, like, Rondo Hatton. It's like you don't want to, like, act, like, uh, like with, with revulsion or anything. Like, you, you want to kind of be, like, sympathetic. Right. Like, if I saw a cow like that, my instinct, I feel like I'd want to hug it. Yeah. But the kids in the movie are like, ooh, I don't know. 
it's i mean it's upsetting you know i mean because we see a cow and he has like a cleft palate um and it's like just constantly like licking it's mm. the top of its uh where its upper lip would be yeah. but it's missing and then like then we see another cow that literally has like uh it's like conjoined yeah uh, not Siamese. a not a special effect that's actually it's just like a, a, yeah. the cow has like two faces on its head yeah. essentially which is those cows are somewhat foreshadowing for the monster right um so you know there there is that element that it's you know it's not arbitrarily put in there because it is like a setup of like oh whatever's going on around this car this uh, carnival is like it's genetically you know there's something in the water or yeah. something um but anyway yeah so we we're introduced to the the father um who's kind of the big bad of the movie even though we have the son who's the monster but he's kind of sympathetic um but the but the father we really don't you know he's kind of just like the evil guy Mm. evil the, the evil villain even though he's also sympathetic because yeah, he, you know, he's like once this is all done we're gonna go son. fishing yeah but at the same time he's just like you know we're just gonna kill those kids and bury him whatever blame um, it on the locals yeah but anyway we're introduced to that character uh in three different incarnations well and... that it's three different characters yeah yeah but what do you make of that? I mean, he's playing the same. He, I mean, he, you know, it's the same actor playing these three different Barkers. Uh, well, there's there's I mean, there's those guys, and then there's like the one Barker, the random British Barker outside the girl tent. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's referring to the dancer outside as his lovely sister, and then William Finley's character was it Marco the Magnificent, I believe. Um, yeah, he, the magician. Yeah. The girl who ends up he's in the is in the coffin and he does the trick with her. He's like, uh, you know, my round of applause, my lovely daughter. daughter yeah. And it's like there's a weird like what the hell is going on here? <laughs> Everybody is related. There's the joke that as the little boy is kind of sneaking around the carnival, uh, trying to like figure out a way to get home. Like he passes by these people telling yeah. a story, and one of them is talking. He's telling a joke about like somebody fucking a cow. Uh-huh. And then it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's telling a story about somebody fucking a cow. There's cows there. The cows, like, one's got cleft palate. And then, mutation, yeah. And, like, wait a minute. Is that where... Did the Barker fuck a cow? And that's how we have the monster in this movie? Because is he, that... he sort of brushes off the mother, like, you know, well, after your, your mother died or whatever. Yeah. And um, then you've got Tad, who... It's almost a throwaway line, like... Your your poor little brother Tad on display in that jar. Right, who's the fetus? Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, I I, I mean I like that it doesn't come right out and say like here's what's going on here. Mm-hmm. It's just whatever's going on here is it's skeevy. So are the are the three Barkers? Would you consider them to be triplets? Are they like three brothers? Because there is this whole thing of like you know I mean the two headed cow the Siamese twin kind of thing like. Yeah. Okay. That's something I never thought about. I just thought like, oh, they're just they look alike because they might be related, but they yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Or is it something more uh magical at play? Where this Barker is 
luring the children to the funhouse. And he's not really... Like, he doesn't really look... Like, those three people don't really look the same. That's just how... We see them through Amy's eyes. There's Each one has a moment with Amy, the lead character, Mm -hmm. where it's just like... Where they're kind of looking at her and she's, like, staring at them. Yeah. And is she seeing through them at the horrible person people that they are underneath and we're, it's just like that image of this this guy it represents that or is it um i don't know this uh this entity that's sort of like stalking the kids throughout the the fairground sort of leading them towards the funhouse yeah i like i i didn't i never really thought of it that that way i like that i'm on board for that okay <laughs> but I like how it's you know it's a cool detail that they put in there because it's the kind of thing that like you know and actually the the actor who played uh, the the Barker Kevin uh, Conway yeah um in one of the interviews on the Funhouse Blu-ray he talks about how it was just something that when he read the script he was like oh I want to do this but uh, you know can I play all three of the Barkers and <laughs> according to him Toby was like yeah man that's fine whatever you know um. Which that, I mean, that's Toby Hooper's directorial style, kind of, <laughs> which that, that's, we were talking about this the other day, but not, while well, not recording, about Poltergeist, where uh, one of the ways the rumor might have, not rumor, but the opinion that Spielberg really directed it could have come from, Spielberg is a very hands-on, take-charge kind of guy, where Toby Hooper is kind of laid back. Mm-hmm. So if anybody asked him a question, he'd be like, eh, sure, I don't know, whatever you want to do. And Spielberg would kind of jump in and be like, well... Here's what we should do, and Toby would be like, "Yeah, okay." I don't like call him Toby. Like I know him. <laughs> <laughs> and from an outside, an outsider, it may just appear that like, oh well, you know, we know who's wearing the pants in that relationship. Yeah. But really, I mean, like, I think if you do look at all of Toby Hooper's movies side by side, there is a clear style there. Hmm. And um, you were kind of talking earlier about how. Um. There isn't as much material sort of written about Toby Hooper as there is, say, your John Carpenters, your George Romero's, your Wes uh, Cravens. And to be honest, I've always kind of, I never really thought of Toby Hooper as being on that same level as them, I guess. Yeah. Because of just like, you know, you, you look at like the, 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 the rundown of like John Carpenter's movies where it's like, he's got Halloween, he's got the thing, he's got... You know, they live, he's got the... Escape from New York. Escape from New York. You know, all these, like, classics, you know. But really, when you do look at it with Toby Hooper, I mean, he's got Text Chainsaw Massacre, Salem's Lot, Text Chainsaw Massacre 2, Poltergeist. I mean, those four films alone, (laughs) I feel like have enough cachet to be like, well, why isn't he, like, you know, more revered in that way he's he's just a little overlooked it's kind of strange and i'm guilty of it but uh yeah i mean i think uh it is interesting that his directorial uh style being so laid back um and that sort of like flippant sort of like yeah that's a good idea you should just play all three barkers you know um it doesn't really come across as being sort of uh inconsequential 
decision making when you're watching a movie like the fun house yeah it feels like there's a real purpose behind the way that it's shot and like the way that everything is sort of staged and kevin conway wanting to do that it was a good idea yeah and i'd absolutely. like to think that if like on some level toby hooper was like oh i didn't think of that that's really awesome well i mean that's part of what a director's job is yeah it's like you know filmmaking is always a it's a collaborative art and like you bring in people who you want to collaborate on that art with and you bring them in so that they are bringing their own unique perspectives and ideas to things. And if you're not willing to, you know, listen to other people and sort of take the best ideas, then, like, you know, that it, doing the things that, like, are going to be best for the movie, then, you know, you're not really taking full advantage of all of the tools that you have as a director. Um, but at the same time, it all has to be guided by a cohesive vision. Yeah. And I look at the fun house and it's like it doesn't look like there's a mishmash of visions going on, you know what I mean? It's it feels like a very cohesive uh, put together thing. And uh speaking of collaboration and being open to ideas, one of the things that I missed out on not watching the Blu-ray and I'm wondering if um it was noticeable to you. Um So Verna Fields was the famous editor of such films as American Graffiti and Jaws. Uh, she passed away, I think, just like a year after this movie came out. She's not credited on the movie in any part, and I'm not even sure how this was a conversation that happened, but she actually said to Toby Hooper, like, oh, you know what you should do? Is when they go into the funhouse, the sound should change. And apparently, again, I haven't heard it myself because my DVD that I listened to was just like really muddy quality um like the sound is fairly standard film sound for the whole part until they enter the funhouse and then i think they open up like a few more channels or something or it goes to stare like i'm not sure they were doing a lot of hmm. sound stuff in the late 70s early 80s yeah where there were where things like you know 5.1 surround sound was not like a common thing at that yeah. time it was like that was all new technology that they were experimenting with yeah, um, i'm not 100 percent on the technical specs of it but i know that apparently there is more sound once they go into the funhouse than huh. there was before because it signals like all right now things are changing now cool. there's a difference was that something you picked up on at all or or it might no, even just be really. a subtle thing where on some level you realize yeah i that. mean like it feels like things get much more silent when we're in the funhouse mm in a way i mean because like but i mean it changes as as things evolve in the funhouse but um and not when they not when they like are off the cars and like hiding in there but i mean when they first go through those doors and things are popping out at them and stuff like that oh okay yeah i gotcha yeah that makes sense i'll have to go back and you know look at that to really yeah. see if uh if that is what's going on there I really wish that in real life fun houses were like this. Right? I've been in some shitty fun houses <laughs> in my life. The last time I went through one, which was at the Washington County Fair, um, I went to go in and the guy running the ride was like, no, you're cool. You don't need to give me tickets. And I'm like, are you sure? I just got all these tickets. He's like, no, no, go ahead. And I went in and it was weird and awkward. Now, was it like uh, a, on train cars? Like yeah. In this one? Okay. And, um, and then I come back out and I said to him, I was like, 
oh, I think I know why you didn't want to charge me. And he's like, yeah, I'm sorry. So what, what he was knew it, like, it, just it, was just, it. It just sucked. It was like, like, like he. It was like maybe if I'd been a little kid, I might have been a little mm-hmm. into it. But even as a little kid, I feel like I would have been expecting something more like the funhouse in this movie, right? And not just, oh, we're abruptly turning corners, giving me whiplash. Like that's I feel like with mm, nothing exciting to look at or anything. yeah, just like oh, flashing lights or like a random thing popped up, but not <laughs> like I don't know. I don't even have any memories of like what the hell. I don't know. I'd love to go to, like, a real good funhouse somewhere at some point. I mean, one of the I mean one of the best ones, I guess, is, like, the Haunted Mansion at Disney World. I've heard that. And, you know, I mean, that's, like, you know, yeah. the, the, the production quality of it is really high. Yeah. Um, you... I guess there's a really great one at, like, Knott's Berry Farm. Or Knott's Berry Farm. Sorry. Is that in New York? Not very far. I think it's. Is it, I think it's out in California. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I won't, I wasn't sure if you were saying like there's one in the area. So. Oh. No. Um. I mean, they're they're out there. They're just not ones that like travel to your town. Yeah. <laughs> the, the last time that I was at the Washington County Fair was a couple of years ago, and Kayla and I went on this ride called the Fireball. And it's basically like a giant ring that like you get in like roller coaster carts essentially mm. and you just are you go you rock back and forth as you pick up more and more momentum until you go, go all the way around the ring upside down and it was like the jankiest like construction job Ugh. of this thing and like the people who were running it like didn't even look didn't even test like you know if we, everyone was strapped in like Kayla was still like fumbling with her seatbelt as the ride began. Oh, I remember and... that feeling. Like I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. And yeah. it starts moving. And they're just like you know, the the two operators are just talking amongst themselves, just kind of like just totally not paying attention to anything else. And we start to go, and I'm looking at the way that this ride is constructed, and I'm like, this was a mistake to get on this thing. Like <sighs> this fair you know it's not like it's not like you go to like the great escape or like disney world or something where it's like this ride has been here for you know decades or whatever and it's maintained they're inspecting it every week yeah and it's like you know tip-top shape it's like this fair just popped up like less than a week ago like yesterday this was a field (laughs) (laughs) yeah and now there's this like dangerous ride and now we're and we're getting closer and closer to going upside down you know and i'm just like holding on thinking like oh god this this is not going to be good and then finally we go like upside down and i feel like you know i'm slipping out of my seat almost and my glasses are like hanging off my head like they're gonna fall off and kayla's like you know freaking out and i I was just like oh my god i'm ready to just slip out of the seat right now and just fall all the way down um yeah luckily that did not happen but but I do love that behind-the-scenes aspect, and we get a lot of that in the funhouse. Fun yeah. One of my favorite parts is at the end when, uh, <laughs> finally to get back on track on the funhouse, one of my favorite parts is at the end when um, when Amy escapes into the, sort of like the lower basement area, mm. and we're seeing like the, all of like the, the, the pulley system of like how the, the, the roller coaster carts are pulled along yeah. and that thing. And uh, I, I really like the the scene where she's down there and she's, like, convinced that this guy is going to 
you know, the monster is like following her. And she's he's gonna he's she's just ready for him to pop out of that vent. And it really takes its time to get to the point where he finally does appear. Um I feel like she's there waiting for him to come out for like a long time. And there's like the, the, the vent uh covering great yeah, the great sort of like dangling by a thread and uh the steam's coming out and like all the gears are turning and stuff it's really uh well done well executed scene and it's another sort of callback to frankenstein because i mean the movie starts out with like the images of classic monsters like the posters on the wall and stuff and then like the monster himself is wearing a frankenstein's monster mask yeah throughout the majority of the time before it's revealed who he is and then at the end down with all those gears and everything it's kind of like those shots at the end of james wells frankenstein mm-hmm. where frankenstein and his monster are looking at each other through the windmill yeah and it's like it sort of sets up this um this sort of like binary of like uh you know frankenstein and his monster are like the same in some ways and you also have that in, in the funhouse with Amy and the monster. Um, they both have little brothers. Uh, the monster's little brother is named Tad, and he lives in a jar. Or is in a jar. He's not living. Mm-hmm. Amy's little brother is just this messed up kid. Uh, I should say mess, messed up kid. Well, he kind of... The opening scene is odd. It is. Um, and also they have... Not the best Parents. parental situation. Yeah. yeah, this was something that Kayla and I talked about. Where after the movie, Kayla was like, "What was the point of the little kid?" Because he kind of is like he's there in the fun in, in the park, sort of trying to find his older sister and stuff. He knows that they went into the fun house, never came out, and then he kind of just wanders around for a bit, gets scared, apparently passes out, and I don't know how the parents are called to pick him up. Yeah. But then there, there's that creepy guy who's like, I cleaned him up real good for you. Yeah. But it's like, so did he, like, tell him at some point, like, these are my parents, you need to contact well, them? Well, he said, like, something like, you wouldn't believe what I had to do to get get it out of him, like, who he was. Or okay, so, like, yeah, that, yeah, that wasn't But weird. it's like, what happened? I cleaned him up after I used him. <laughs> yeah, and, it's like... really weird. That's such a creepy-ass seat. Like, the mom is drunk. Yeah. Uh, the father looks so uncomfortable. It's like a combination of like, oh, I'm in this like seedy carny room. It's really gross in here. And also, did this guy fuck my kid? <laughs> like, Toby Hooper in an interview, he, like he references that scene and he's like, yeah, and we've then we've got the carnival manager who's like a very obvious pedophile. Toby Hooper said that. Really? So that was like not like, so it's purposeful subtext. Yeah, and, like, doesn't necessarily mean that he did anything to him, well, I mean, but he wanted to. traumatized afterwards. I mean, the kid, he couldn't even speak he can't afterwards. Even, he, can't, he can't even speak, and then, like, he drives away in the car, and that's it. He leaves the movie. And it's, yeah. like, kind of like, okay, like, what was, what happened here, you know? The moment, the big moment in this movie for me is when they're leaving, when the parents and the little brother are leaving and Amy sees them from inside the funhouse, And it's like, 
the idea of home and family and safety, it's right there. She can see it. And she's screaming at the top of her lungs. They can't hear her because she's on the other side of that fan. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that is like this like recurring nightmare I had as a kid of just like, I'm in a dangerous situation and I can see my parents or like my grandparents or some relative and I'm like, help. And they're like, either they can't hear me or they're like, I would, but I have to go do this thing. And what's weird is before I ever saw the funhouse, I remember a specific nightmare I had where I had been like kidnapped by these crazy redneck people a la Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And like I got away from them and I made it to this house, which definitely was not my parents' house, this big ritzy house with like a fancy pool out back and there were all these people, they were having like a pool party, but they were all wearing suits and drinking champagne and stuff. I don't know what that was about. Um, and I see uh, my my parents and I run up to them and I'm like, I got away. I'm safe. I'm so glad that I'm finally back. And they're like, oh, where have you been? I was like, I was kidnapped. These horrible people took me. And then the crazy redneck people show up at the party and they just come right up to me and they kind of like hold on to me and they look at my parents and they're like, we're going to take him again. And they're like, what? And they're like, we're going to take your son away from you again. And they're like, oh, okay. And then the crazy redneck people just take me away and I'm back with that. And I was like so close to being free and back with my family. Yeah. And it's just so weird that, like, I definitely had that nightmare after seeing Texas Chainsaw Massacre at some point as a kid. But before I had ever knew anything about the existence of the Funhouse. Right. So I, I loved when I first like watched it's, it's and I saw that moment. It's all baked in together, though. Yeah. It's like this weird sort of yeah, elemental, in, in, instinctual, primal kind of fear yeah. that is just permeates both of those things. But, like, I love that. And also, I mean, Amy is a character who she's on the brink, the cusp either of those works of adulthood. (laughs) Right. Um, And it's like, at a point she's not going to be able to be like her little brother who can just go home with the parents. She's not going to be able to like, be like, mom, dad, I need help right now. She's like on the verge of like, I have to take care of myself. And oddly enough, it's really just dumb luck that helps her survive at the end. Like, he goes to attack her, and he reaches back too far. Right. Like, that's all. Well, it's funny because it's, like, not only does he have to get, like, electrocuted, but then he has to get, like, strung up by these chains and, like, dangled around the room, and then he has to get crushed by these gears, and, like, it's still not enough to kill this fucking guy because he's just, like, we never actually see him die. He's just screeching and hollering. Mm. Um, He's just an unkillable thing. But the way that he was strung up and the, and the way that those chains were on the ceiling, it reminded me of Texas Chainsaw Massacre with, like, the meat hooks and mm. stuff, you know. But. I, Elizabeth Barrage as Amy, I really love her performance. In yeah, this. It's, she I don't does, know her she does a lot of subtle stuff um, where she's not really saying a whole lot, especially in the in the early parts when she's, like, you know, on this date with this boy and her friends and stuff she kind of has this like certain maturity about her while still being like you can tell that she's like kind of nervous but not like overtly so she's like 
there's a lot of like nuance going on with her, I think. Yeah. And she becomes en- enthralled by these various barkers for some odd reason. And uh, like she has a sense for something happening, but. Yeah, I love just when it just, it'll cut to her face just reacting to something. Like she doesn't even, she won't even have a line. But like, uh, Buzz, you know, like the, right. the older guy who, he's, I don't, I don't really, they don't really say his age. I have the feeling that he's like already graduated because Richie yeah. says something about he has like one more year of high school. Um, and like, it's like this 30 year old guy is dating this like 16 year old something. But like when he does like the, uh, the strong man thing, when mm-hmm. he like takes the hammer and, yeah. uh, like it cuts to her face and she's like, Ooh, Just the look she's, on his, she's yeah. clearly turned on by this guy, which is a nice, she's not like the allegedly typical slasher heroine, you know, the virgin, the like, you know, standoffish. She, she wants to fuck this guy. That's like the whole reason she's going basically. It's not like, Oh, he has to seduce her. She's like, all right, this is the guy. This is the night. I'm going to, this is going to happen. Yeah. Uh, And it's, and it's like the key to adulthood and adulthood, like the outside world outside of the home as little, as the little brother learns just with like the, the dog, the crazy guy with the shotgun, the, child molester it's fucking terrifying out there and she's going in whole hog and like i don't know it's weird and like they're like for all intents and purposes they're teenagers the the two couples Mm -hmm. they clearly think of themselves like all teenagers do as adults who happen to be children right um so they're acting like adults and then towards like actual adults like the older people they're very dismissive and like you think like the old guy outside of like the girly tent Mm -hmm. uh when like liz kind of bumps into him and drops her cotton candy and then starts yelling at him and and then everybody kind of old guy is peeking through the 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 girly tent supposedly quote-unquote peeing yeah but you know i mean we hear (laughs) we hear him zip up (laughs) he's like i'm just i'm just peeing back here and it's like yeah okay (laughs) But, like, they're... And the scary old lady who's, like, God is watching, like, mm-hmm. they're... And uh, Sylvia Miles from Midnight Cowboy as the fortune teller. Um, oh, in the... For- yeah, that's the, bas- the biggest example because they're just, like, laughing and mocking her and kind of... Yeah. You know, just being rude and... But they're, you know, they're having... Yeah. They're, like, they're having their own good time. Yeah, and, and, like, from your sort of, like, enclosed teenage perspective, like, you can do that, but then all of a sudden it's, like can't do that in the fun house like i don't know <laughs> does that make sense at all like not in the fun house, not in the fun house. <laughs> uh the fun house is adulthood and it's coming to get them it's kind of like the movie um it follows which i haven't seen or the novel it i have yet to see the new movie i've seen the, the miniseries and that kind of doesn't really do it as well as the novel but it's sort of like the it in both it and it follows which i mean those are two unrelated things but title wise i feel like they go next to each other on the shelf okay? <laughs> uh i mean the it in both of those could be just encroaching adulthood and responsibility that you just can't shake and it just is horrific if you look at them through like metaphorical lens this um, but yeah, I feel like there's like a bit of that in the funhouse. 
Um, I mean, they're very judgmental characters, as are all teenagers. I shouldn't, I mean, I shouldn't just knock teenagers. I'm a very judgmental person. I'm far from a teenager. Um, <laughs> but, you know, teenagers have that chip on their shoulder. They think they, you know, because they've grown up, they've, you know, gone beyond childhood naivete. And they think that they suddenly know everything because they're like, oh, I suddenly see the world for what it really is. Yeah. But really, they, you know, they don't know what's going on. <laughs> what did you think of Sylvia Miles in this? Do, do you know her from anything besides Midnight Cowboy? No, I don't know her from anything else, but... I don't think I do either. She was, uh, she was good. Yeah. She was serviceable. <laughs> uh, right? Um, yeah, I mean, that scene when, uh... It's, and I guess kind of what you're saying about, like facing reality in the real world in the fun house and how like the couples go in there and they're like oh we're gonna spend the night and we're gonna have sex you know and this is gonna be like the big night that is gonna happen and you know there's and as like liz says you know like i don't know what you're saving it for referring to amy's uh, virginity or whatever yeah um and we get the sense that amy's sort of he sees it as something special you know mm. and then in the they're sort of interrupted by their uh you know uh goings on their fornication <laughs> by this other view of sexuality which is i'm going to pay you to give me this uh terrible uh hand job <laughs> you know and it's just like there's nothing romantic about it there's nothing special about it and it's that could have like, been the monster's first time. That could have been him finally being like, you know what, tonight's the night. I'm going to go to the fortune teller. Right. And, uh, you know, there's nothing... There are no flowers and roses. Like, is it before, up, upstairs, when, when they're looking down, like, they're literally laying in these, like, beds, beds of flowers, yeah. you know? Um, like, it's, like, it's the most romantic thing ever. And then it's like... <laughs> meanwhile, no, this is the real world. You know, this is what, you know what it really is it's just like raw and dirty with the with the bright lights on and it's just awful <laughs> i i really liked um the actress who played liz in this um with the very improbable name largo woodruff i believe is her name her the actress's name yeah largo woodruff i think i saw that name in the credits and i was like don't know who he's playing yeah. didn't realize it was her um but it's one of those performances where the first time i saw the movie i didn't even really pay attention to her that much because it's like oh there's the standard you know blonde bimbo in the slasher film i don't know what the... i wasn't watching film correctly at that point uh but like i don't know there's just she's got these little moments um there's this great one where william finley as the magician like he's looking for a volunteer yeah, yeah. and like she thinks that he called on her mm -hmm. and then like there's this look on her face like oh it's it's not me and she has a look of like it's a combination of relief and disappointment and regret yeah and both at the same time for sure yeah and it yeah i i totally picked up on that specific moment because it was it's an impressive moment because like the camera doesn't even linger on her for that long it doesn't seem like but acting it, even it just seems yeah, like it the face an actual person would make all of those things where it's like 
you know her boyfriend is like you know, he's like any volunteers and her boyfriend is like holding up her arm for her and she's like no no yeah but then when she actually thinks she's called on it's like you see like oh like it's my time to shine yeah like <laughs> and then that moment of realization where it suddenly is like she lets out that sigh of relief but you can see kind of like some of the uh the light go out in her eyes a yeah which is it, it is it really is a cool moment because yeah. it's it, go, it comes and goes so quickly and and you might not even be looking at her because you're looking at the girl behind her right who actually does go up and uh and she was great too for her just little moment yeah in the movie and she uh liz has another great moment where like we were just talking about when she bumps into the old guy behind the the girly tent right like all right, so they're all trying to look through this hole, like the four teenagers. And Liz is kind of like, she can't really get in there. Like, they keep shoving each other out of the way. And she says something like, whatever, I'll go find my own hole. Yeah. And then she says to herself, it's like, like, I can't believe I just said yeah, that. Like, I can't, yeah, totally. And it's like, just watching it, you're like, was that just something the actress just improvised right there, like, yeah. as a joke? And but then the shot continues. It's like this like tracking shot around the corner when she bumps into the old man. So it's like, oh, okay. So it's not because at first you're like, oh, this is like she thought the shot was over and she just said that. Like you just, mm-hmm. I don't know. There are bits that she does that just seem like real, real life. Yeah, yeah, totally. And um, you know, I was looking at her IMDb credits and there's there's not many, and that's mm-hmm. disappointing. Yeah, she was definitely cool. Yeah. And Richie's a piece of shit. Yeah, Richie, who's her boyfriend, who is kind of. Um... Part of the problem for for how they get into this. I mean, he's the one who... He's su- the problem. He's the one who suggests that they stay in the fun house. He's the one who steals the money from uh, the the lockbox after the murder has happened. After the, they witness this murder and they see that there's all this money in this lockbox. And, of course, he has to go and steal it. And, um, yeah, he's just kind of a douche. Yeah. And, um... Yeah, I don't, that's that sums up Richie. I don't know. Yeah. Do you think now that Toby Hooper has passed away, you know, people will start looking at his career more? I mean, his he has grown in esteem in recent years. Uh, like DVD and Blu-ray have helped with a lot of these filmmakers. Like some of their lesser-known works have been seen by more people. Um, but do you think people are going to be seeking out more Toby Hooper aside from like the you know the top films that everybody knows? Um, I would hope so. I mean, we're doing it right now, right? Yeah. I mean, we're going out and seeking out these things, and it makes me seeing the Fun House and sort of reconsidering maybe some of my dismissive attitudes toward him, which are is totally unwarranted. And I was never really dismissive, but just never really like um, took the time to consider his full filmography um but i would think so i mean like and and like you said like uh i mean it's great that like there are companies like shout factory and arrow who are actually taking the time to be like oh we're going to highlight a movie like the fun house yeah um which you know without home video a movie like that could just vanish into the ether never to be seen or heard from again um I do have to say that, like, uh, this conversation has definitely changed my opinion of the Funhouse a little bit, because 
after watching the movie, and I briefly talked before we started recording, I, I sort of said, sort of like, I don't know how much I really have to say about this movie. Um, clearly, now that we've gone an hour and a half <laughs> talking about it, like, I, it turns out I had a, you know, a decent amount to say. Um, I, yeah, I just, uh, yeah, I'm not crazy about the movie. It's not like, you know, one of my favorites or anything like that. I thought it was, it was good. Yeah. Um, kind of, uh, like I said, I kind of enjoyed the first half more than like the slasher half because once it gets into the slasher kind of stuff, it's like, okay, you know, we're, we're just picking them off. And then there's some great cinematography in there and it looks cool and stuff. But, um, it didn't really do a whole lot for me upon immediately after watching it. Um, but, but that's, what's nice about doing this podcast is like forcing yourself to actually sit down and discuss a movie and actually think it through and all this kind of interesting stuff that like you saw and you experienced comes to the surface that like you didn't realize you saw Mm. and experienced, you know, until you sort of form it into words and say like, Oh yeah, there is like this other stuff going on here. Um, so yeah, I, my opinion of it has definitely grown after through this conversation. Yeah, when I first decided that we should do the Fun House, because uh, I wanted to do a Toby Hooper film yeah. for this month, um, and like I was trying to think of ones that would fit in, and there were a few, um, but the reason I zeroed in on the Fun House was just, it's one I watched a while ago, and I didn't really think much of it, and I was like, well, you know, let's just try it again, and if it's not that great, I mean, if it's the theme, well, we don't need to talk about great movies all the time. We haven't always talked about great <laughs> movies on this show. That's true. And it was weird rewatching it. I was like, oh, this is a little better than I remembered. And then I watched it again, and I was like, this is a really good movie. And then I watched all the special features, and I was reading some stuff about it. And now after this conversation, I'm really appreciating the movie a lot more than I did just like two hours ago. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, like, and Kayla and I talked about it, and and she was kind of like, didn't really enjoy it as you know as much. She was kind of like, oh, it's not really that great of a movie. And I was kind of like, yeah, it's okay. Um, but when I actually think about it, it's uh, you know, I did enjoy, I did enjoy it. Yeah, and I mean, there's even stuff that we haven't even touched on, like Rick Baker, the makeup. Yeah, this is like right around the time of. American Werewolf in London, mm-hmm. and he's doing um, I, the monster in this. I mean, and we should actually say something about that. We can't go the whole movie without talking about the monster. Yeah, <laughs> um, that moment when the mask is is ripped off his face. Yeah, where he's and, hitting himself, and the 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 reveal of of his face, of his actual face, yeah, was definitely shocking. Yeah, and was like, whoa, not expecting that because it's such a. Uh, a monstrous face way more than i was expecting i was expecting something along the lines of like how you usually see the disfigured like jason Voorhees or like right you know kind of like you can see the man there he's maybe like a bit like michelle i was thinking almost something more like uh like chunk from the goonies or something you know yeah but then he's revealed and it's like whoa he's he's got like almost like a bat face you know, it's like he looks like uh, like albino. He's got sharp teeth. There's a certain kind of like medical condition with babies that I've seen images of where it kind of has like those reddish eyes. Mm. Like the eyes aren't fully formed. Um, 
I mean, he looks like almost like a naked mole rat or something. Like he looks very. I mean, as Amy says later, like he's not even human. Yeah. Um, which I don't know what that says about her, sort of dismissing him as as not even being human, but because I mean, clearly he is, unless he's half man, half cow, like maybe you suggested. <laughs> I mean, it's just a passing thing they throw in there. It's like, hey, maybe this is what happened. Like, I don't know. Um, yeah, like, he's it's he's so monstrous that he's hiding himself with the mask of a monster. Yeah, true. Yeah. it's, And I love that it's when you first see this guy in a Frankenstein mask. Like, he's just a random guy in a mask. Um, I mean, you watching it for the first time, did you, when you saw a guy dressed as frankenstein's monster were you like oh he's gonna be an important character in this no not at all yeah and i mean there is like some there's a slight foreshadowing where you, we see frankenstein's monster in that early scene in the in, but, the, in the opening scene yeah yeah we see but it's like Bride of frankenstein on tv and... yeah and it does it, like there's a you we hear that line like the bride of frankenstein like over a shot of amy and it's like is that where this is going like maybe like the frankenstein at the carnival Maybe maybe he'll be a good guy. Maybe he'll save this Amy girl from the actual monster. Right, like he falls and like, in love with her, and yeah. But well, it doesn't go none that of way. That, at all. No, yeah. no. Um, no sexual tension between Amy and the monster uh, that I saw. Unfortunately. Ah, damn it. <laughs> um. All right. So there are certain movies where you know they end like on a certain note where it's like you know if you're just in the theater or something you're watching this movie it ends you know you're just like okay yeah that's an ending that's a really good ending and then like your mind starts to wander and you're like wait like i know that we've we've talked about this in relation to on the waterfront where you're like wait what happens right now right after the movie ends um I don't even know if we talked about that on the show with On the Waterfront. I just know that you and I conversation. I, I just always love, and for anyone who hasn't seen On the Waterfront, I guess this could be spoilers for the very end of it, but um, Marlon Brando gets beaten mercilessly, and he's yeah. all, like, beaten to a pulp, and he's at the factory, and, like, you know, it's all about, like, the striking of the factory, and it's like, oh, we're going to go back to work. And so they, like, lead Marlon Brando back into the factory, and, like, that's, like, the last shot is him going back in. And I just imagine him, like, all beat to hell. Just like, all right, here you go, at your station. And him just being like, what the fuck, I gotta do this. <laughs> you know, he's all, you know, he's, like, bleeding from the face. All He can't even see. And he has to, like, you know, load up these boxes on this, you know. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, that's, so, just, <laughs> that's just what I think about. It's like, at the conclusion of the funhouse, the Barker's dead. The monster's dead. Amy's friends are dead. Uh, she walks out of the funhouse. And the uh, the fortune teller's dead. Yeah, the fortune teller's dead. Um, she walks out of the funhouse. It's daylight. It's it's like um, when... Spoilers for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Sally gets away at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's clearly traumatized. But she's not going to be murdered anytime soon. But with Amy, it's like... Alright, so this... She's in that carnival still. And yes, the sun's out, but I mean... All the people there, you know, they work with the Barker and his son. They may, may even all be related to them. We're not sure of that weird thing going on. 
there's those two other barkers who may or may not still be out there right. if they're different people well and there's and the, the one person who takes notice of her is the old woman who comes up again at the end yeah who says god is watching you one mm. last time which i don't know if that's to me and she says it before when amy and liz are in the bathroom talking about what's going to go down with buzz and liz is like what are you waiting for come on you got to get with buzz and this woman's like hey god is watching you so maybe the whole thing is like this morality thing where like you know god's watching you if you go ahead with this if you like you know lose your virginity or whatever like bad things are going to happen and as soon as she starts like you know getting down and dirty it gets real dirty real quick and not not in a good way like this is a slasher film that all the critics of slasher films think that every slasher film is right where it's like if you try to have sex you're gonna fucking die or yeah because god is is <laughs> watching and is gonna punish you for it he will send a jason Voorhees or a michael myers to get you as an avenging angel i guess yeah but also like all right let's say she gets out of the carnival and she's okay and everything then she goes home right. what's waiting for her there I don't know, and that's something interesting as well that, that Kayla and I talked about, is that, you know, we picked up on the fact that, like, they aren't really great parents at all, even when, like, in the early scenes in the house, like, they're just so, like, kind of dismissive of both of their kids, yeah. and there's this line where um, the father asks the mother, and I think it's as the, the little boy is leaving, he's sneaking out of the house, mm. and you can overhear them in the living room, and the father says... Uh, aren't you going to uh, go upstairs and kiss him goodnight? And she says, I'll do it tomorrow. (laughs) That's one of those, there's a few lines of dialogue that I would see referenced in different reviews that I swear to God, I could not hear. Well, on on your sound mix, yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, But yeah, and like the... When she's talking to her parents as they're watching Bride of Frankenstein on TV, and, like, the way they're sitting, and, like, the father has his arm, like, up on the back of the couch, as if it should be, like, around her, but she's sitting just out of reach of his hand, sort of. Like, she... I don't know, there's just... I feel like there's just these little moments where someone should be watching them and be like, Toby Hooper, he knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. just these little like compositional moments things like that and just i feel like that, that like aren't so overt but they all add up to this feeling that like you know yeah they don't really have that great of like a home life as much the parents aren't really involved in their in their children's lives i feel like in the hands of a lesser filmmaker there would have been more like dialogue about like somebody would say amy would complain about a situation like she'd be talking to liz and be like oh my parents don't understand me and it's like Mm -hmm. she doesn't need to say that because i'm sure liz knows because i'm sure liz has weird family relations like everybody does kind of yeah um or at least it seems that way to you as you're a teenager right um but like i mean like there's a scene where amy's calling home to say that she's staying at liz's Mm -hmm. and she kind of like shuts the door to the booth as Liz is trying to like listen and uh and then in the background of that shot the old lady is there oh is that right yeah and like you just kind of see her like I kept expecting it's weird like even as I kept re-watching the film I kept expecting like oh she's gonna come up and say God is watching you again but no she was just back there watching she's the she's the key to all this 
Yeah. She's the thing that is plaguing them. Because she's like, oh, don't do this. Yeah. Don't do this. If some crazy old lady tells you not to do something or she warns you against something, listen. I think that's the takeaway from this film. It's generally like, you know, fairy tales and mythology and stuff. But I mean, yeah. also, you know, if, if, an old, if an old lady is like, here, take a bite of this apple. Yeah. <laughs> but sneaking out to the carnival in this movie is like... It's like Little Red Riding Hood going through the woods to get to her grandmother's house. Uh, or like... I don't know. It's just... It does have this fairy tale element to it, which is in a lot of Toby Hooper films. Like, it's definitely in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's definitely in Eaten Alive, which is all. It's very similar to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and it usually gets compared to it. But it's Chainsaw has this gritty realism to it. Eaten Alive is completely soundstage. It's very. It's got a weird garish lighting with odd colors. There's nothing real about it. I mean, there's a giant fucking crocodile or alligator or something like in it. Like, I don't know. Um, but it it has. I just I lost that whole sentence. But it's got this great fairy tale like quality. Fairy tale quality. Yes, that's. But uh. uh, yeah, so that's the fun house. That is the fun house. Overall, I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed this discussion about it. Me too. Um, just incredibly briefly, I'm just going to keep this brief, but before we move on to what we're going to talk about next week, um, I just wanted to say, I went and saw, I went to the movies this week, and I saw Darren Aronofsky's new movie, Mother. And uh, right now, I mean, like, there's sort of the aftermath of this movie, which I don't know if you've seen any of like the uh, the discussions about what's going on with this movie. No, because I, I want to see it, so I haven't really like sought out anything about it. Yeah, and that is for the best. I'm not going to say a damn thing about this movie. Other I than see like, it. I loved it. Okay. Um, but like, there's a very split. It's either you really liked it or you absolutely despised it. Um. A lot of people just hate the movie so much. and uh, But I want to encourage anybody who might be listening to this to give that movie a chance because it's, it's, it's unexpected and, uh, and bold. And I think that that's... I, I want to see more of that in, in mainstream filmmaking. In, you know, filmmaking. And... Um, the fact that this movie got like such a wide as as wide of a release as it did is kind of remarkable <laughs> um and uh it's lost a whole bunch of money and like it's you know it's just getting like destroyed <laughs> so if i want to see it in theaters i should hurry yeah i would think so because okay. i don't know how long it's going to be sticking around it'll probably be gone by the time this episode is out there for people to hear no i mean it just came out last week so i would think that it would be at least like uh Oh, by the time this episode is out there, yeah, yeah, this is um, it might be <laughs> it might be out of the theaters by now. But maybe it's on, you know, stream. You know, maybe you're listening to this a year after we're recording it. Maybe it's on DVD. Maybe it's streaming. Give it a shot. It's and have an open mind and, uh, you know, try something maybe a little bit different. 
I'm glad to hear that because it, it's a it's a horror movie that got a wide release and it came out at almost the exact same time as it. Yeah, which was like a huge fucking blockbuster. It made all the money in the world. Apparently, like this apparently is a good year for horror films. That's what that's what that's what the uh, the general uh, insider buzz has been about because we've had movies like Get Out, which has uh, I think was that incredible financial success. That might have been the best movie I saw that came out this year and is highly critically praised. And then even a movie like Split, which was Shyamalan's movie, was uh, received well by by audiences and it made. A whole bunch of money received then, much better than other recent Shyamalan yeah films. and then it comes out and is like set so many box office records as being like you know it's like number one rated R movie opening of all time like I think it's I think it's beaten Deadpool at this point like it's it, you know just massive massive wow. hit that uh, nobody could have expected um, and then there's mother sort of just like tucked in there and uh you know, people. I guess part of the the complaints is that the advertising for the movie doesn't exactly line up with what the movie turns out to be. Hmm. Um, because I mean, I only saw the the trailer, and that was a while ago before I saw it. But I don't want to dwell too much on Mother. Um, but yeah, I just uh, I just wanted to put a plug in because I I really really loved it, and um, I wish more people would would give it give it a fair shake. And not just look at what the popular opinion is about it. Um, um, make up your own mind, and if you don't like it, that's fine. You know, like you can not like movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, at least make up your own mind. I'm really. I think that's a great way to end this episode because I mean, you know, it's, we've been talking about you know in recent years and recent months just losing Wes Craven, George Romero and of course Toby Hooper. Yeah. And it's like oh it's like this whole wave of horror is dying and like the, the genre is in peril but really it, it, no there's always going to be new people and it's it's just going to keep going and there's always going to be great horror films out there. Yeah, and hor- horror's always been in this cycle of like sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. And uh 2017 has been a an historic low at the box office across the board. It's like the lowest audience turnout in 25 years, just like going to cinemas and going to the theater Mm. and like studios are, you know, (laughs) losing money left and right on stuff. Um, But even in the middle of all that, the, the big success story has been horror films. They've all been for the most part, really profitable. Even movies like Annabelle and like lights out and all these kinds of things like have just uh, done great. So, yeah, the future of, uh, of horror is looking good. And, I mean, next year there's, I mean, we talk about, um, you know, this, this great horror generation, sort of the last, one of the last remaining uh, people there at the Vanguard is uh, John Carpenter. And he is apparently returning to the franchise that he birthed Halloween as a, as a producer role and yeah. perhaps doing the, uh, the score for it. Um, we'll just see how that goes we'll see how that i don't want to <laughs> i don't want to jump to any conclusions i don't want to write anybody off i don't, but it just let's just see how it goes yeah so anyway um yeah toby hooper rest in peace um maybe after this episode you know if you didn't watch the fun house before this maybe go check it out um maybe go check out some of his other films um you know go outside of the texas chainsaw massacre and you know see what other 
what other gems lie beneath it that are just over you know seek the diamonds in, in the rough yeah in in the shadow of uh of texas chainsaw so what are we talking about next episode next episode we are going back to king country our first stephen king movie since our second episode ever where we talked about carrie we're going to be talking about needful things needful things and this is from what year 1993 1993 this is a movie that i definitely have not seen um it's one i grew up with cool so uh stephen king's needful things and who's the director of that fraser heston son of charlton oh interesting and there's uh i said we're gonna be watching the theatrical cut but if you search out there in the interwebs somewhere there is also the uh, much longer TBS version. So, if you're listening to this, it just came out and made all the money in the world, like I was just saying. Yep. Get ready for more Stephen King movies. Because even despite the fact that Dark Tower didn't do so well... Gerald's Game is coming up soon. Yeah, so if you want to get ahead of the curve here, <laughs> maybe, you know, watch Needful Things, come back and listen to us talk about it. Because you know what's going to happen in like two to three years. It's like there's going to be a Needful Things remake coming out. And you can be one of those guys that said, like, oh, the original was better. Yeah. So that'll be next time on Talking Movies. Thank you for joining us for another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And we will see you next time. I can't do rides like that. Um, I feel like there was a time in my life when I could, and but that time is over. Yeah, I you know, I love roller coasters and stuff, but um, I can't that do kind it. of thing. I just yeah. I could do ones that don't go upside down. Once and then afterwards, spend like twenty minutes just kind of sitting, until I gather myself, sort of. What about like uh, uh, the Steam and Demon? I never did the Steam Demon. What? I know. I, I would stand in line as a, as a child, like with my sister and my family, like as they were all going to do it. And they would get on and I'd be like, okay, I'll meet you over here. I just, I didn't want to go upside down. The, when they put the comet in the Great Escape, I was like, awesome. A roller coaster doesn't go upside down. Right. And I could do it. And I was fine. Until this one time I was there with like some of my friends and there was this guy, Ryan, who I kind of knew. And he was like, I'm just going to ride the Comet all day. <laughs> and so we went on with him twice in a row. That was one time too too many. After two times, I was just like, this was a mistake. And like me and my friends kind of like went elsewhere. He actually did stay and just kept going on it for a while. One yeah. time I went on it and I threw up afterwards. <laughs> um...
And it's not as far as roller coasters go. I mean, it doesn't go upside down. No, it's it's fine. It's but I don't know. That was the first time I'd ever thrown up on a on an empty stomach, and I remember being shocked by the fact that my vomit was just white foam. But that's a whole other thing. <laughs> It's a little off topic at this point. Yeah, well, I was just thinking there was a time when um, me, my brother Luke, and Luke's f- school friend all went to the Great Escape, and we and like it wasn't very busy, yeah. and so like there was literally no wait time at the Comet, and so we rode it like seven times in a row, yeah. something like that, and it was great. Um, I'm just shocked that like you've lived all this time here and you never did the Steam and Demon. Because that to me is, I mean, there's the comet, and that's like sort of, you know, the iconic sort of uh, roller coaster with Great Escape. But the Steam and Demon is literally like it is Great Escape. It is Great Escape that's because the, it's right in front. I it's have like the first like, thing you see, you know. I have Steam and Demon like a, a mug at yeah. my house. That's I think I've got like a Steam and Demon patch like from when I was a kid. Like, yeah, I've got like it's like I rode the Steam and Demon. These Great Escape posters, the Steam and Demon is like front and center. And it's a very short <laughs> roller coaster. It's not, you know. Yeah. Like, Comet's, like, long. You were on that thing for, you know, a good couple minutes at least. Like, I did go on one roller coaster in my life that went upside down. It, um, Boomerang? No. I don't remember the name of it. It's, it was It's in Ghost Town. The Canyon something? Or... I'm not sure. Um, so, our friend Kate LaPointe, who comes up on this all the time which is weird because i don't even really hang out with her that often anymore but anyway years ago uh i went to great escape with her and i was like i don't really like roller coasters i just kind of want to go on the swamp boats and she was like that's lame i'll go on the swamp boats with you if you just try an upside down roller coaster and i'm like okay fine and she talked me into it and we went on and it was horrible which one was it it was is there one called it the Canyon Blaster or something? It's like there's the Alpine something, but that one that one's not like a no. It that was, one's like the toboggan sled one. Yeah, no, this was. Down. I'm pretty sure it was in Ghost Town, or at least part of it went over Ghost Town. You sure it wasn't the Boomerang? It's like super short. It was not the Boomerang. Okay. It was one that no one really talks about. Yeah, I don't even know what you're like, talking I don't... about. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I didn't go on one. This was the first time that I'd ever taken uh, Dramamine. Maybe I just had a whole... I don't know. But anyway, um, so I went on it, and I was like... I had to sit for like 20 minutes afterwards, and I was like, that was horrible. And then I was like, all right, let's go on the swan boats. And she was like, actually, I'm going to go home. Ooh, couldn't get the girl on the swan boats. (sighs) I don't know. Swan boats are the best. Just, I don't think I. I, I, I think boats. I read this one. I think I rode this one boat like once when what, I was like a kid. What I loved about the swan boats is that it you got to see kind of behind the scenes of the Great Escape because you went on that. All right, so the Great Escape, like many theme parks, due to low property value, it's built on a swamp. Um, <laughs> and basically, like, there's still some swamp left in this park. And the swamp boats just kind of go around this little stream, swamp stream. Yeah, it's a it's a sad and, stream. It really is. But it's awesome because there there used to be like jungle land in there. Yeah. And when you go through, you see like 
this big fake like hippo or rhino and all this all these things and you're looking and there's like all this like these bushes and there's like these creatures behind it that are, i mean clearly fake yeah. but i've always loved like that artificial look of things and I, I could tell things were fake and as a little kid i'm like oh look at that big fake rhino well like the jungle the jungle area was really cool yeah you'd go on that big suspension bridge and you'd yeah. like jump up and down on it and like you know there's like the fake gorilla and the fake elephants and all that kind of stuff it was really cool but like also on the swan boats, so when you went around it, you'd go by like the Alice in Wonderland area, mm-hmm. and you would see like some of the, like the statues and figures from Alice in Wonderland. But some of them you would see at a weird angle where you could see like the things holding them up, kind of. Ah, uh, yeah. And you would see like every now and then you'd catch like an employee on like a smoke break or something. Well, that that's what it was like on the magic carpet. Is that the the magic carpet? Is the, the one we call it the? It's like uh, it's it's suspended above like yeah. the whole park, and you just get, it's almost like a that's ski right lift. yeah it's like a ski lift essentially. And if you went at just the right time, you got to see um, the divers. Yes, the divers changing their clothes. Yeah, because like you could because you go <laughs> right over like their like the divers like tent area or whatever, or like you know they were getting ready for the show. So yeah, you you would go on the the magic carpet and you get like some and I love scenes kind of. Uh... I love that ride too, and I think part of it is I love that kind of like we're seeing these things that we're not really supposed to be seeing. Magic carpet was always the best, like at the end of the day. Yeah. I, I was like doing it when it was like the sun is starting to set, you know. So like, and you'd get up high and you just sort of like, you know, you've had a nice day and you're just chugging along in this like very leisurely paced hmm. ski lift throughout the whole park and like you know the, the you got a nice sunset going and then like you can see everybody like sort of leaving and yeah you know i man i haven't been to great escape in like over 10 years i, I think. haven't been since that day with kate lapointe not because of that like she wouldn't go on the small boats i'm never going back it just i got to go in for free that day and if that's ever offered again maybe i'll go but yeah for yeah if yeah. i had a uh, an opportunity to go in for free then maybe i would go But I do love that behind-the-scenes aspect, and we get a lot of that in the funhouse. Fun yeah.